This is from 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're reading verses 8 through 11. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I don't think I'm ever going to get used to preaching 12 minutes into the service. It's like right away. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we come into your presence together. Uh, We ask that you would be um, gracious to us, that you would be merciful, that you would, uh, in this moment, um, move your grace into our hearts to change things that we can't change, to change our mind and change our hearts and change our uh, feelings and change our desires and the things that we want to change so badly but can't, Father, on our own. We ask that you... um, through this grace of your word, I would do it now. Open our eyes that we might see uh, the glories of your gospel. We pray it in your name. Amen. So we're finishing up. This is the third week of walking through this three-week kind of progression through these verses um, to talk about spiritual formation, understanding that the definition that we're using is becoming like Jesus, that spiritual formation is becoming like Jesus with and for others. So from the first couple verses here, verses 3, 4, and 5, we saw two weeks ago uh, the why of that, of becoming like Jesus, why that it's, it's necessary, it's a necessary part of our salvation, uh, and it's also possible because God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. So the why of spiritual formation is because it's possible and necessary. And then last week we talked about the what Okay, so if spiritual formation is is possible and necessary, what does that mean for us? It means we need to live this life of disciplined grace because we can't change ourselves. It's not about doing the list of qualities in verse 7, but it's about becoming those by exposing ourselves over time consistently with effort to God's transforming grace and power uh, in our lives. And So today, we're going to finish up with these last couple verses, and I want to talk about how. How does that work? We have a why, we have a what, we need a how. how. How does it actually work for us to expose ourselves to the grace of God? And traditionally throughout church history, the how of this process of spiritual formation has been called and kind of used the heading of spiritual disciplines. I don't know what you think of when you hear that word. There's a lot of different responses that you might have to the word spiritual disciplines. Maybe you have no idea about that. You're like, I've never heard that before. Uh, you could also have experienced a very static or sort of mechanical uh, teaching on spiritual disciplines, meaning like if you do X, Y, and Z, if you put A, B, and C into the whatever, then out comes certain results. And so we've tried to use spiritual formation, spiritual disciplines or discipline in our life to kind of uh, manufacture certain results. So maybe that's the way that you've experienced or thought about spiritual disciplines. Or maybe you've um, 
you've experienced, and this is maybe more what I've, I experienced in my life, is more what I would call a performative version, where like doing these things is the point. This is pray every day, or do this, or go here, or whatever, and the spiritual disciplines become the point. They're, by doing them, you get a gold star on your like chart in heaven, and if you have enough gold stars, then you get extra rewards or something, and it's a very uh, kind of performance-oriented version of spiritual disciplines. Um, but I want to hopefully pr- present today from these verses a different way of thinking about how we become like Jesus using spiritual discipline. So I have three points, uh, relying back on my training today to to preach a three-point sermon. So we're going to talk about the life of discipline, the freedom of discipline, and then the fruit of discipline. So let's start with the life of discipline here in in verse 8. Peter writes his... uh, He's here, he writes, for if these qualities, now remember, he re, he, that's referring to verse, verses 6 and 7 where he listed these, his fruit of the spirit, knowledge and self-control and godliness, brotherly affection and love. So if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ. And then later down in verse 10, he says it a different way. He says, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So there's three verbs in there connected to what we should do with these qualities. The first one is this idea of possessing them. It's hard to see in English. It says, if these are yours, that's our verb to be. There's actually a Greek verb in there. Like if you possess them, if you have these qualities, so that's kind of step one. The second verb is if you're increasing in them. And then in verse 10, there's this verb practice or do. If you're doing them, if you're, if you're actually practicing them. And you put those together, possessing them, increasing in them, and practicing them, it, you get this picture of a holistic life that's practicing these things, where your life is described by this, where you're possessing it, you're increasing, they're becoming more as you go through your days, and you're actually doing things that are facilitating them. It's, a, it's describing a whole life that is built around the idea of becoming like Jesus in, in these ways. There's a great article that we uh, looked at in our community group a couple weeks ago from Christianity Today, and the title was, Anything Worth Doing Takes Practice. Anything Worth Doing Takes Practice. I'm going to think about things that you practice, right? You practice, uh, maybe for you it was music. Lem can talk about this, right? You don't just sit down at the piano. Imagine coming up to a piano the first time, and you sit down at the keys, and you put a Mozart piece up in front of you, and you can't play it because you've not practiced. You've not become the kind of person that can play Mozart, doing that takes years and years and years and years of of practice, of discipline, of doing the same things over and over. Same with sports. The reason why we look out onto a football field and we can see these guys making these crazy plays is not because they were born with the magic ability to intercept footballs at high speeds. They spent many years and many hours doing things seemingly maybe unconnected to football, right, in the gym, the way they eat. There's all these things, all these disciplines, practices that go into the end product of being able to play like this. And this is true across a lot of things. We're very familiar with this idea of practicing and being disciplined to get to an end. And what Peter's trying to tell us here is that faith is something that takes practice. Faith, we, we tend to at least, you know, I've kind of conceived of faith in the past of something that you have. It's like a, it's like a light switch or not. I either have faith or I don't have faith. It's kind of a yes, it's a possession. And Peter's saying, look, faith, this knowledge of Jesus that you have is not a possession. It is a thing that you practice. It's a thing that takes 
practice, the thing that you grow, that you don't get this fully formed, you know, Mozart-level faith on day one, that you have a small faith that needs to be practiced, that has to be grown over time through disciplines, that there's this cultivation in the sort of plant metaphor of, of cultivating the earth and of watering and of being exposed to the sun and all the things that go over time to practice to the point where this, this um, end result of faith kind of blossoms into fruitfulness. And what we see is that faith here, this practice, this life of discipline that leads to the flourishing of our faith, if we do that, that faith is not then ineffective or unfruitful. And I was looking at this word, it's like faith, it won't be ineffective. I said, well, ineffective for what? What, what is he saying that if, if you don't do these things, if you don't have this life of practice and discipline, your faith will be ineffective? Well, this word ineffective, it's the same word that James uses when he says faith without works is ineffective. It's dead. It's the same Greek word translated in James as dead. Here he's saying it's ineffective. In other words, he's saying that faith without the practice of faith is not faith at all. Like it's not something you can have without then actually practicing it through a life of discipline. Don Whitney writes on spiritual disciplines. He says, godly people, people with these qualities, are disciplined people. They, they practice these things. They're not things that just happen. They're not things that just occur. They're, if we want to grow in our faith, if we want our faith to, to be effective for the goal, which is salvation, then we need to practice that faith in a, in a, in a way that, that we can see, that grows. And the way that the church has talked about those this growth, this life of discipline is the spiritual disciplines. And this is the way they're defined by Don Whitney, who I just mentioned. He says, spiritual disciplines are the personal and corporate social disciplines that promote spiritual growth. They are the habits of devotion and experiential Christianity that have been practiced by the people of God since biblical times. So there's these habits, there's these things that the church does that promotes spiritual growth. It's really important that we stop right there to realize that these activities, these actions, are not the growth itself. Right? I come to worship or I read my Bible or I pray or any of the things that are the spiritual disciplines. Those things in and of themselves are not the goal. They are the place, the context, the path where the transforming grace of God actually begins to work on us and produce this fruit in our lives. And that's, this is one of the main ways where spiritual disciplines go wrong, when we begin to see them as the point or the, the actual transformation themselves. As long as I'm reading my Bible once a day, therefore I am spiritually healthy. So well, no, that's, that's like saying that just because you watered your plant every day, the plant was going to be healthy. It's one of, all of, altogether, those habits promote and encourage and allow for the actual thing that we're after, which is growing in, these, in this Christian virtue that Peter described. And so that, those, those things that are called spiritual disciplines, are they promote growth. And when you put them together, the word that, that Christianity has used for a long time is called a rule of life. It's a way of sort of holistically describing all of the habits in your life. If you were to sit down and write down the intentional habits that you have to promote spiritual growth, the description of your life with your habits of, of promoting spiritual growth, seeking this virtue through the grace of God would be called your rule of life. We hear the word rule and it sounds very restrictive, but it's more about describing the way that holistically, the way that we use all that we are, our responsibilities, our roles, our gifts, our talents, our time, all of these things in such a way that we will grow 
uh, with one another and for the good of each other in virtue. The most basic practices of spiritual disciplines and the basic rule of life that should describe all Christians that are seeking to live out their faith throughout all of Christian history, the two primary disciplines that we see are, one, daily prayer, this idea of daily coming into the presence of God and saying, I'm not here to earn anything from you. I'm not here to like check the box and get my gold star on my chart so I can see that I have a gold star every day, but I'm here because I need the grace of God in every single day. And Christians have always said this practice of, of daily bringing ourselves into the presence of God is a foundational habit and rhythm, and that's bookended by worship. Right, we've talked from the very beginning of Redeemer that we value this context of worship very, very highly because this is one of the primary ways, one of the two foundational practices of the church that allows us to then begin to grow in formation of like Christ, to be formed like Christ. It's not that being here earns us anything, but it's that being here is actually presenting ourselves to God in such a way that his grace can act upon us together in with his people. So those are the two kind of foundational ones. And Eugene Peterson, he says, describing those two specific actions, he says that those two things are the set place where we habitually go over the grounds and the vocabulary and the rhythms of prayer immersing ourselves in a centuries-layered praying community and becoming companions with those friends who pray and are doing prayer. He's describing this like consistent habit of exposing ourselves to the, to the activity of prayer, not as a way of earning God's favor, but a way of, like we talked about last week, exposing ourselves to, to God himself and his grace and how it changes us. And so with those two practices in mind, then there's, all of, there's a host of other practices and tools. Think of it like the, our gardening metaphor. Your, your two foundational things that plants need without, without any question is light and water. Those are kind of like daily prayer and worship are light, the light and water that will feed the plant of your soul. And then out of that, then you have all these other tools that you use to garden. You have a shovel. Sometimes you have a rake. You have the pruning shears. You have all these other tools that you use that are oriented towards allowing the plant to grow healthily. And that's what all the other spiritual disciplines are. And there's a lot of ways to categorize them. Um, this, there's a church that I've been uh, reading their materials, they got a lot of things on spiritual formation, and they have their three categories are this. This is just one example. They have being with Jesus, and those things are uh, habits like uh, continual prayer throughout the day, meditation, the habit of Sabbath, the habit of silence, habit of fasting. These are maybe the things you think of when you hear the word spiritual disciplines, and those would fall under uh, in this categorization, being with Jesus. But then you have another category that they call becoming like Jesus, and this is the habit of, they call it owning your story. You might more classically call it confession. <laughs> Understanding what makes you who you are, where you've come from, what sins characterize you as a person, as an individual, knowing who you are specifically, um, and then living into your calling and identity. Who, what has God called you to be? There's a discipline to understanding that, to identifying who am I and what am I called to do in this particular place and time. And so the discipline of being able to think through that in the context of God's grace is a spiritual discipline. Maybe the, the cele uh, celebration would also fall under this, this idea of celebrating the things that God wants to celebrate. is a discipline. Uh, their third category is called doing what Jesus did, and these are more outward-facing, like hospitality. It doesn't just happen, it's a discipline. It doesn't earn us anything, but it exposes us to the grace and people of God. 
hospitality, doing justice, being generous, actual habits of generosity. I don't know if you have those in your life. What would you say is a, a habit, an actual habit that you have is a discipline of being generous. I think most of us just sort of hope we're going to be generous, and when we have an opportunity, we'll do it, but do you have a habit? The church has said having a habit of doing generosity intentionally is a way that God's grace gets into our hearts. Evangelism, service, discipleship relationships, these are all other spiritual disciplines. There's a lot of specific things that we can use as tools to, to help our growth. But the main idea is that those things are put together into a holistic approach to help order our lives around, have this holistically ordered life that's oriented around receiving the grace of God. And that's what Peter's describing by seeking these qualities, by having them and increasing in them and practicing them. And so the practice of faith is this approach to life where everything is ordered around the grace of God. So thinking about your life, what, what is your life organized around? Is it organized around your work or your school? What, what habits dominate your everyday life? If you were going to say, these are things I do every day, what, what would you write down? What are the habits that, that dominate your life? Would you say that your daily life is ordered, organized, around receiving God's grace into your heart? Because Peter says that that process of organizing our life, receiving the grace of God, that, that ordered life produces in us these fruits, these things. That's the, the life of discipline. There's, that could probably be a whole series, sermon series on its, on its own, and we're going to spend six to seven weeks talking about that in community groups. The problem with all of that, I think for me, and for many of you as I've talked to you over the last number of weeks... Is it talking about discipline sounds like talking about the law. It's, it sounds very constrictive. It sounds very restrictive. It sounds very tedious, very uh, oppressive, right? You're gonna, I'm going to commit to all these habits that I do and I have to do on a right. That sounds very, it sounds very constrictive. It sounds like more like the Old Testament, right? Deuteronomy, God says to the people through Moses, if you obey the commandments of God, by loving the Lord your God and by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments, then you shall live and multiply. And you say, well, it sounds a lot like the spiritual disciplines are a law that we have to follow in order to get life. Sort of similar to the, to the objection that I brought up last week. Are we earning our salvation? This is more like, I thought Christianity was a religion of freedom, right? I came to Christ to be free, it is, right? That's the famous, we see it in some buildings around our country, for you know, if, if he, he who has been set free will be free indeed, that Christ has come for freedom. We say, well, that, this whole spiritual disciplines thing doesn't sound very freeing to me. It sounds sort of restrictive and oppressive and law-oriented. And I think Peter might understand that we would object to that. So he writes verse 9, and he says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, there's two descriptive words that he uses. He uses the word nearsighted, and he uses the word blind. Nearsighted carries this connotation of this willful rejection of what God has called us to do. So the person who doesn't approach life with discipline to seek to, to grow in virtue is, he says, nearsighted, meaning they're kind of willfully rejecting what God has called us to do. But then he also says they're so much, they're doing that so much that they are blind. 
I've never been blind. It sounds terrible, right? Being blind is this, um, it's an inability to see, right? That's what blindness is. It's not something in and of itself. It's the inability to do something positive. It's the inability to see. And that's what Peter is describing. He's saying, if we are not growing in virtue, we are blind. We are unable to do the thing that we want to do. And that gets at one of the heart of one of the things that we have to understand is that our natural state is a state of blindness. Our natural state is a state of inability to do the things that we want to do. This is what Paul writes in Romans 7. I know that nothing good dwells in me. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. You know this experience. You want to stop doing this thing. You want to not be angry. You want to not be bitter. You want to not be anxious, but you can't. You can't do what you want to do. We are actually in our natural state powerless. We're not free. We have this assumption that our default state is freedom and that anything that comes to us from the outside, that is law. That is restrictive the, the Christian view of the human is that in our natural state, we are slaves. It is only by those things being removed that we are actually able to do what we want to do, what we should do. I've mentioned the book, uh, The Common Rule. It's a book uh, about rule of life, and the author's Justin Early, and he writes this. He th- says, we think that by rejecting limits on our behavior, we remain free to choose. Right? Is that how we think? We think as long as I don't have external things restricting, then I get to do what I want to do. But we know based on our experience that that's simply not true. To be blind is to be a slave to ourselves. There's several ways we can be slaves. We can be slaves to ourselves. Richard Foster says there is no slavery that can compare to the slavery of ingrained habits. I found that true in my life. We are, we are enslaved to our own habits, to our own desires, our own brokenness. Those things enslave us. We are unable to change. We're unable to do what we want to do. We're, we're certainly unable to do the good that we're supposed to do. Right? We know this when it, anger and bitterness and envy and impatience and those things that we want so hard to get rid of, we can't get rid of them because we're enslaved to them. And yet... When Peter comes along and says, hey, I have a way, I have a way to be free of those things, it's by disciplining yourselves by faith, in faith, but to grace, we say, ah, that sounds hard. I don't want to do that. It's like, it's like the person who goes to the doctor and is an unhealthy person and says, doc, my blood pressure is 180 over 120. What should I do? And he says, you need to eat better and you need to exercise every day. And the person looks at the doctor and says, that sounds restrictive. So you know know what's restrictive? Really high blood pressure. That's actually restrictive. The the discipline and the effort of doing the thing that allows health to happen, that's the path to actual real freedom. Peter's saying when we reject the way that God has allowed us to, to actually pursue and find freedom through the discipline of faith, when we reject that, we are blind. We remain slaves. 
It's true in so many metaphors, right? Go back to the gardening metaphor. A plant who wants to get up out of the garden and walk around and do whatever it wants is never going to grow. It's required that it is rooted, that it has a schedule of watering and a schedule of sunshine and a schedule of pruning, and that it has to be disciplined and connected and rooted and attached to habits that give life. That's what spiritual disciplines are. They are these habits that expose us to life. And we often push back really hard on that because we have this bad view of freedom that says any outside restriction on me is bad. It's limiting. It's law. And the question that I've had to ask myself, and Jeremy Mancini and I talked a little bit about this this week when we met, but it's this question of what, how is that working for me? How, how is it working for me to reject discipline? I reject, I reject the discipline of whatever it is, daily prayer. And I find that I'm always anxious because I'm never in the presence of God. I reject the I reject the discipline of corporate worship, and I find that I'm disconnected from the church. Being in a large church before and being the connections pastor, the person that tried to help people get connected, I can't tell you how many times people told me, I just, I've been here for four years and I feel disconnected. I said, well, what habits of connection have you been pursuing? And they're like, well, none. I said, well, you're enslaved to your disconnection because you haven't submitted to the discipline that leads to freedom, leads to growth and virtue and love, self-discipline. Do you see how that works? But we're not just slaves to ourselves, we're slaves to our culture. Early writes, by ignoring the ways that habits shape us, we've assimilated to a hidden rule of life. It's the American rule of life. There's rigorous program of habits has formed us to be the anxious, depressed, consumeristic, unjust, and vain people that we are in contemporary American life. We've we've adopted these habits of busyness and performance and self-orientation and consumerism, and those habits have bound us. We're enslaved to them. Our avoidance of discipline, it's another author, says, is a symptom of the pursuit of instant gratification that characterizes our culture. Instant fulfillment of needs and desires allows no time for the long and rigorous path of the spiritual disciplines. Peter's saying, make every effort to discipline your entire life around receiving the freedom of the grace of God. We have to shift our mindset. The absence of limits is not freedom. The absence of limits is slavery to our culture and ourselves or even our circumstances. You become a slave of whatever happens to you next. And yet we constantly push back on external restrictions. These metaphors are helpful, the plant metaphor, the doctor metaphor, the the music metaphor. When the teacher says to the student, you should practice your scales five times a day, it's not because they want to be legalistic. Well, that sounds very legalistic. It's like, well, do you want to play Mozart or not? Do you want the grace and the goodness of virtue? Do you want to experience that virtue? Then this is the way. Walk in it. Peter's teaching that discipline is the path to freedom. The practice of faith through discipline is the way 
to freedom. We have to stop thinking and fearing that limits are a threat to freedom and see that the right limits are actually the path to freedom. We're limited by all kinds of things. And most of the time, we're not aware of what even we're limited by. We think we're free. Peter's trying to call attention to the fact that it's going to take effort and discipline in order to become the kind of free people to do what it is that we're called to do as part of salvation. The piano student that sits at the piano is not free to play Mozart. The person that walks into the gym for the first time never having exercised in 20 years, they're not free to run a mile in seven minutes. You see, it's shifting what we understand by freedom. We want freedom to mean freedom from limits. But real freedom is being able to do what is right and what is good for us. That's where we'll find true joy. And yet we live in this, we swim in these, the American waters. The default way of life for most of us, most of the people you meet, most people you work with, the default is this unexamined, undisciplined, disordered life of happenstance that's enslaved to all kinds of things that we have no idea about. So where do you need the disciplined grace that leads to freedom in your life? We have to together, work together to encourage one another. This is the with others part of our definition. To see and identify areas where we can work together. We need help. We need one another to be disciplined in faith, to practice a life of faith. So Peter calls us to a life of discipline, and he tells us that there's a freedom in discipline, but then he talks about the fruit of discipline. He says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, practicing these qualities, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think most of us don't want to hear this verse. It's telling us that the way that is provided to receive the kingdom of God is through growth in Christian virtue. It doesn't mean we've earned it. It's the way. It's the path. It's all the grace of God. It's all God's grace. It's all God's help. But the pathway that God is helping us walk on is the pathway of becoming like Jesus with and for others. Peter's saying that's the way that we actually experience the kingdom of God. That's the way we enter the kingdom of God is by becoming like Jesus. This is back to where we started, that this is necessary part of what it means to be a Christian. When we receive the grace of God, it's not just the grace of forgiveness, but it's the grace of transformation. And that discipline leads to change, and that leads to freedom, and then that leads to this fruit of receiving things that we're called to receive. It's the good life. So we have to ask, what, do we want to do what we were made for? Like, do we want the freedom that, that that pianist feels when they sit down at the piano and they can play Mozart without looking at anything? Do we want that freedom? Do we want the freedom of the football player that just dominates on the football field from muscle memory because of the years of practice that they've put in to be able to be free to do their sport like that? Do we want the freedom of the healthy person that can go out and walk and through discipline of eating and exercise and all the other things and sleep has come to be a healthy, free, healthy person? Or do we want to be tied down by the slavery of disease and unhealthiness? 
Those are all metaphors. They all break down eventually, but that's the, that's the kind of thing Peter's presenting. Do we want to be free to do what God has called us to do, to be the kind of people that we're called to be, to be loving, to actually be self-controlled, to actually be patient? You know how much better it feels to be patient than to be impatient and have to constantly be smashing it down? That's freedom. That's the fruit that God is calling us to bear. And we bear it by walking the path of discipline. The final part of our definition is that spiritual formation is becoming like Jesus with and for others. And this is where we see how that works. The best thing you have to offer someone around you, the best thing you have to offer the world is being like Jesus, is being loving, is being patient, is being self-controlled. These things, as we begin to grow in them, then we are able to love and serve our neighbor the way that we talk about at the end of every service. That spiritual formation is not just a personal matter for you to become good. It's actually the way that we are able to love our neighbors. Without that, we're not able to love our neighbors. I can yell at you all day to, to, to go love your neighbor, but unless we practice, we're practicing faith so that we are growing in virtue, we're not going to be able to do that. This is what the world needs right now. This is what our culture needs. We need people who are formed to be like Jesus through the practice of faith, spiritual formation. So spiritual formation is possible because of what Christ has done. It's a necessary and essential part of salvation. It happens through this discipline of exposing ourselves to the grace of God. And that discipline is the way to freedom and fruitfulness in our lives. I want this to be the vision for our church's approach to growing in Christ. Do you want to receive the grace of God's transformation in your life? To be free to live the way that he's calling us to live, to lo actually love God and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the vision that Peter paints for us, and it's the vision I hope we grow in as a church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, Peter's words. Thank you for the, the freeing power of the gospel that you uh, give. I ask that you would cultivate our understanding you would do to us what we can't do to ourselves, but that we would respond to your uh, call by disciplining our lives, ordering our lives around receiving your grace uh, minute by minute, day by day in all the things that we do. Transform us to be like you, that we might love you and love our neighbor in a way that um, demonstrates the grace and the power and the beauty of the gospel. We pray it in your name. Amen.